0: Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. We are in number two in this series that I'm doing on, I don't really have the exact name of it, maybe, Is God in Control or What Does Sovereignty Really Mean? You know, just the little light topic that none of us ever argue over with our friends and family. and uh, you know. So I don't have, uh, it might be a little loud, Mike. I don't have the agenda to get all of you to believe how I see these things. I am more interested in maybe tweaking how you see God in addressing these issues that we're going to talk about. See, because what's at stake is the character of God. What's at stake is how the world sees God. And too often, we have what's called circumstantial theology. In other words, circumstantial theology looks like this. You're in someone, you're you're in counseling, you're talking to someone, and it's like you're talking about this particular issue, and you're like, ah! As the counselor, you're thinking, ah! This is easy. I got this worked out here. Look, right here, this scripture says this. This is your answer. This is the solution. This is directly responding, revealing to you exactly what God says about your issue. Well, yeah, but I believe. I'm like, well, okay, we've just entered into the land of I have no clue how to help you. <laughs> you come to me for answer, I'm going to scripture. Amen. It is the only source of life that we have. It addresses everything you're going to face. But because my mama said, or grandmama taught me this, or I went through this and I learned this, therefore God is like this circumstantial theology rather than just looking at the word, right? But even in that, we read the word differently than others do. So it's one of the reasons why we just constantly stay on the topic of the gospel, addressing issues of righteousness, addressing issues of identity, so that you know who you are in Christ, and you know and you are totally anchored in what he did for you, which doesn't mean that it's a license to sin. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't still kill it doesn't mean that you can just do whatever you want to and not reap the destruction of your wake of bad decisions because, hey, God loves me. Yeah, God's not going to stop loving you, but you reap what you sow. But that doesn't mean that God is punishing you because he already did that to Jesus on your, in your behalf. And see, when you don't, when you don't think of that truth from the spiritual perspective, and you think of it from the carnal, worldly perspective, in other words, legalistically, what you hear is you're somehow watering down how God sees sin. It's like, no, I just want to have the conversation on the spiritual level. I want to have the conversation on the level of how God sees us and how God sees righteousness, and then deal with the issues, then deal with behaviors and deal with what's going on in your life even in how you interpret circumstances. So, you know, I see the end, in other words, eternity, after the resurrection, all of time coming to fruition, whatever, however that looks, whatever's going to happen between now and the second coming and the resurrect, the final judgment and all that stuff, I mean, that all is still to come. Whatever happens between now and then, we have a choice in the matter, but ultimately, after that resurrection... It's like there is a masterpiece of eternity that is painted. It's not like a work in progress. It's finished. Where we are going to be in eternity with God is a complete place, right? It's not fluid like this place. It's not subjected to our choices. And it's not that you don't have, it's not that you're a robot there. It's just that you've entered into full freedom, so it's like we're looking at this picture of time, and it's done. We were in, you know, it always sounds so pretentious, but when we were in Paris, we went to the <laughs> Le, Le there. And there's this Rembrandt on the wall, and it is gigantic. I mean, it's almost as big as this, a wide as this blue part here and taller. And you're standing there looking at it, and there's hundreds of people in this room looking at it, and you're thinking, my goodness, this is, this is incredible, you know, that's like what eternity is. That's like what, how God sees everything. It's a finished masterpiece. Amen? And all we're doing is continuing to see the revelation like you see something different. I mean, you could stare at that painting probably for hours, days, and see something different. That's eternity, right? That's God's life. It's finished. It's singular. It's, it's like immovable. It won't change. But in between the garden and eternity, we're in chaos. And so I started last week addressing the issue of what is God's ultimate will. And you start with, okay, where are the places that we can look and see where God's will is unhindered? In other words, this is what what God wants for mankind, for your life, and for this planet— Where can we see that? And it's you go to the garden before sin entered in, and you go post-resurrection, eternity. Those are the two areas that we only have the right to look at and say, those are unhampered by sin and death. That's what God wants. Wouldn't you think that God wants it to be how he created it? But, of course, he had to give free will for us to choose him so he would have children and not robots. That explains the process. So if you didn't get to listen to... If you weren't here last week, go listen to the podcast. It's up. I think the message, we called it um, The Ultimate Will of God. I go, you know, into just that a little bit deeper. But ultimately, and we all agreed, so you just kind of have to act like you agreed like they did last week. I'm not just trying to get you to believe what I believe, because today we're going into where we will disagree, and I'm okay with that, right? I don't need you to agree with everything that I say. I just want to get you to maybe think a little bit differently about God in some areas. Y'all okay with that? These are areas of application where we are going to root our theology and our understanding in the Scripture, but application gets different. You know, people just, it's interesting. So don't argue, just discuss. (laughs) Ultimately, again, working from this premise, what God wants is heaven on earth because that's the way he created it, and that's the way he's going to set it back. And in the middle, Jesus prayed, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God wants for that, that for us even now. Why else would he inspire Jesus to pray that? And now I already hear all the questions. Yes, but persecution and suffering and affliction and sickness and yes, this. And so here we go. You all ready? <laughs> Today we're going to talk about suffering and persecution. So I'm going to read more than I normally do because I just, I, as I was studying, I just kind of wrote some of these things out, so... The broad view of God's will for mankind is heaven on earth. Can we say that? Because that's what he wants, because that's how he created it, that's where it's going to be. Where we differ is the methods and the reasons of why this life is not currently heaven on earth. So we'll just talk about some of those kinds of things, so... We're talking about the character of God and the context of His relationship with us as believers under the new covenant. Now, we're not throwing out the old. We're just putting it in its proper place that Jesus said He fulfilled the law. We're under a better covenant with better promises. Now we are in Christ, not under blood. Amen? So there's a notion that we are made holy through suffering. You ever heard that? The problem is that's not actually taught in the Word of God. It's implied in areas where suffering is addressed and then the effects of something spiritual like patience kicks in and then holiness is manifest. So next week I'm going to go into temptations. I know I just said a big sentence there, but next week I'm going to go into temptations and trials and all that. So this week is going to overlap with next week. There might be some passages that you think should be added to this topic. I'll probably cover them next week. In fact, if you're really interested in this, uh, you know, like I texted Will just to get a broader perspective of what people might be thinking. If if I don't address something today, and you have a question or you'd like a particular passage addressed, the Wednesday nights actually start this coming Wednesday. You know, it'll be very discussion based. And, you know, it'll be fun, I think, to just kind of drill down on some of these, and we'll use the word as our our basis of discussion. But again, if there's something you want to hear addressed or you have a question or a particular scripture that confuses you, send me an email, clint at forwardchurch.net, and I will, you know, consider that as I study this week. So it's not actually taught that your suffering makes you holy. Holiness, it comes one way, and you have to look at the Old Testament to really understand some of the aspects of the new. In other words, what sacrifice does. Holiness under the old always came, which holiness really just means set apart. In other words, it's, it's in the position it needs to be. It's set apart, able to be used by God. What makes something holy is that it is sanctified properly. Tables, garments, candlesticks, all of those things were holy under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. The, The clothing that they wore was holy because it had been sanctified properly. In other words, the right oils, the right spices, the right types of ceremony had been performed over those things, and people were also to sanctify themselves And the way that God would do that is give them the ceremony, whether it be ashes or oil or fast or whatever. That would put you in a place not where you were holy in your efforts, but set apart in your heart toward him. All of that stuff that God would have them do externally under the old was for the purpose of getting their heart to be focused on him which is where he would then meet with them and discuss with them. So even under the Old, and it very specifically says that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Very, very clearly, the law was never given for righteousness. It was given to keep them alive. It was given to keep them set apart. It was given as a schoolmaster to keep them protected until the Messiah came. It was given to, yes, to lead them into blessing. This is how you live. This is how you treat people. And for the purposes of the heart, in other words, the, the, the sacrificial elements of the law, there were sacrifices put in place that you could execute or have the priest execute for you, and that blood temporarily would cover your sin so you could be, you know, stay alive pretty much. All of that stuff's still in place. That's how holiness still works. That's how sanctification still works. Sanctification is a process that happens inside of you by the blood of Christ that leaves you set apart to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Everything that God has for you is by grace through faith. Now, He absolutely is active in our lives. He absolutely is dealing with us externally as well. But what He will give you and what what He needs within you is given by spirit. Now, I know I've said a lot there, and we'll, we'll dig down into some scripture here. So, there was this guy a couple thousand years ago. He was a wealthy prince, came from a rich family. His name was, let's see, Siddhartha Gautama. He was an Indian, Eastern Indian. And he was from a wealthy family. Uh, And there was, even in India now, there's this kind of class segmentation going. You know, there's indication that that was still happening back then, that there was injustice in the classes back then. Well, this guy was dissatisfied with life and his lifestyle. And so he sought, he set out to find truth. And he started walking and he noticed injustice in the streets and he noticed all this stuff that was going on in in his area. And so he thought, you know what? I'm gonna go to the woods. I'm just gonna, I'm just done with this stuff. I'm going into the woods. I'm gonna figure this stuff out on my own. You ever felt like that? Like, forget y'all, I'm going in isolation. And that's what he did. And he started learning meditation and he started working on issues of understanding how the earth worked and the planets worked and not really planets, but just how life worked. And he came up with a few principles. One, life is suffering. And another one is everything is empty. And he came out of the woods after like a six-year process and went into the streets and started teaching these things. And they gave him the title, the Enlightened One, that we know of as Buddha. Buddhists believe that there really is nothing, and your goal is to get to a place of nothingness where this world doesn't have anything within you. And the way that you get there is through suffering because what suffering indicates is that you're too attached to things in this life that you need to let go of. So as you suffer, you become more clear and empty or what we would call holy. And so suffering is your path to holiness. That's Buddhist fundamental 101 thought. And it has crept crept its way into Christianity. Asceticism is the more modern definition of you going through something in your flesh to gain something from God. When understanding... See, here's the deal, and I know this is challenging for some people, but in this grace awakening, in this awakening unto righteousness that we should be experiencing as new creatures in Christ... You have to begin to detach God's spirit and God's manifestation of everything that He has for you from spirit into this dimension from your flesh. No flesh inherits the kingdom. So that's why I think, you know, we, 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 this is, I just feel the call of this church is to lay this foundation and constantly stand on this foundation and think spiritually. We are to compare spiritual with spiritual. It's when we come out of that spirit understanding is where we have these divisions, and it's like, okay, well, what about this, and what about this? That's all right. So I'm just going to read. We're going to read a bunch of scripture now. You all okay with that? We've only got one service today. That means I'm only preaching once. I got to get it all in. (laughs) Romans 3.19. I didn't even give them the scriptures back there, so Matt, you'll have to keep up with me. Romans 3.19. We're going to read quite a bit of this, so if you want to, you can, you know, open your iPhone and your Bible app to, or, you know, you Galaxy people too, sorry, or you can look up here. You ready? You with me? Romans 3.19. Pull pull that background out. There you go. All right. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks, now, the law is perfect, okay? The law is holy and righteous in and of itself, but it cannot produce righteousness, you got, you got to think of like what, like what Vicky said. You know, I appreciate that. Because we've been taught that righteousness is something that you get after you've kept the law. Even though the word says contrary, contrary to that. We've been taught that righteousness is somehow related to how you live. Righteousness means one thing. And that means as it should be. Or it means a right standing. You are as you should be before the Father. You are in right standing before the Father by one thing only, the finished work of Jesus. Amen. Now that's the spiritual understanding of it. If you're thinking carnally and you're thinking sin and, and judgments and, and you know, efforts and behaviors and all of this stuff, then we're going to disagree. Let's bring it up to comparing spirit with spirit. First, and then we'll deal with the carnal aspects. Does that make sense? Carnal just meaning physical. So Romans 3:19. Now we know and I think I'm in the ESV, so this might not exactly match. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Are you under the law? Are you sure? Because I might be tricking you. Are you under the law? I don't sound very confident in that. It's like, oh. You are not under the law. You're under grace. And I feel like I always have to qualify. Does that mean sin is okay? Okay. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For though the law, uh, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, and this is incredible, this is probably the biggest revelation that Paul was persecuted for. This is probably the revelation that a messenger from Satan was sent to buffet him when he asked God, please remove this thorn from my flesh. It was people coming against him, persecuting him for preaching just this next passage, verse 21. It's incredible. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law. means apart from you being good enough in your own strength and efforts, there is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified... As a gift, justification is a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a substitute. Propitiation actually means to satisfy anger, a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Talking about the Passover, talking about the Israelites. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, where then is boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? No but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now in Ephesians 2, it even says that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works in, in any form, not just works of the law. Your righteousness is not associated with your works. It's, I mean, it's like still, I can, you know, it's tilt, 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 All right, so that's the foundation we're standing on. That's the revelation that Paul brought that turned the world upside down. That's the revelation that should have been clearly understood when God put Jesus on display, and that entire nation that had been under that sacrificial system for 400 and, well, for 1,500 years or so, they should have looked at Jesus and said, bing, you know, a light bulb should have gone off and said, oh, This is it. This is the fullness of the manifestation of all of these things that we've been doing. Our hearts have been prepared for hundreds and hundreds of years to receive this, to understand this. And I'm sure a lot of them did. But it's like, even still, for 2,000 years, we're still not fully understanding it. So, tribulation, persecution, suffering. We're standing on the foundation of righteousness, by grace through faith, righteousness apart from the works of the law. Tribulation. Now, let me just say in short, I'm not trying to say that there is no suffering or that your life should be comfortable and you're always riding in like a hovercraft and you're just protected in a bubble or something like that, you know. I mean, you do have the Holy Spirit always leading you and guiding you into truth, Hear me on this. See, we can't forget these truths as we deal with some of these other things. The Holy Spirit is in you, leading you and guiding you into truth. Jesus said that, right? He said he will tell you things to come. He will remind you what the Father says, and he will show you things to come. I may have said that already. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you, giving life to your physical body. What do you think that should produce? I mean, I don't, you know, I have my thoughts. What are your thoughts? If you really seriously had the life of, I had this, that same, think about this a dead body, dead for three days. The cells are gone, there's no life in it. The blood has stopped, decay has started to set in. This body laying on a rock for three days, God, Spirit, pulls him out of that grave puts Him back in that body and makes that body not just back to life, but eternal. That same Spirit is in you, giving life to your mortal, which is physical, body. That's just Scripture. Where do you go with that? What does that mean to you? I know what I think it means to me. It means that God is trying to bring health to me. Okay, so we're not saying, I mean, we can't forget that stuff when we deal with these other things, all right? Tribulation, the word tribulation, because as believers, we may still experience suffering, persecution, tribulation. I am going to contend that those things aren't part of God's path to get you righteous or holy, but they might be part of your calling. That God will call you to, and you might experience those things as you follow Him for His name's sake, for the Word's sake, okay? Not for holiness' sake, not for righteousness' sake, but for the sake of the gospel. Shoot, I'm done. Let's say amen, let's go home. <laughs> tribulation ultimately just means pressure or to afflict. A word study on tribulation. Uh, reveals that tribulation comes from the world or from God toward his enemies. Okay? Believers will never experience tribulation from God. But we might experience it from his enemies. Pressure, affliction. All right? So persecution... I'm going to go topical on these now, so now we're entering kind of school mode here. Galatians 3.12, if you would, uh, Matt, put that up there. Galatians 3.12, talking about persecution. You know, because some people think that when you teach that God actually meant, meant it, when He inspired the Scripture that says, Above all, I wish that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Physical, spirit, soul, and body prospering. And, you know, I make a joke of it that doesn't mean so you can drive your million-dollar Bugatti up a golden driveway into your 15,000-square-foot mansion. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about righteousness, peace, and joy, you experiencing the fullness of what God does in a human. Physical healing, I think, is part of that. I'm going to deal with some of that stuff, just so you know, later on. We're going to deal with Romans 9, where it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and stuff like that, and... You know, again, I'm not trying to get you to believe everything I believe. It's just I want to maybe change how you see God in some areas and the questions that you ask about life when it goes the way you don't think it should go. Because ultimately, I want you to trust God because God is trustworthy, and He has good plans for you, not to harm you. Amen? Amen. Persecution, Galatians 3.12. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are not trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Persecution comes, absolutely, but for the sake of the gospel. Just a little context here. Second Timothy 3, this is going to be verse 10. But you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Amen. Wow. Yeah, God called me to a place that I would be persecuted for the sake of the gospel, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Wow. Verse 12. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Nowhere does it say that persecution gets you more favor from God. Nowhere does it say persecution is the process of refinement that God puts you through to make you more holy. Do you see that? You can go and do the word study. It's there. doesn't mean you're going to live, you know, free from any trouble, especially if you're living godly for His name's sake. All right, so... suffering. Now we'll get into the suffering aspect. This is a big one. Go to Acts 5 in verse 34. We'll start here. This is kind of a long reading here. Y'all good so far? You with me? This is where we're kind of going to get into some areas because, you know, I think it's important that we just tweak some of these areas of how we see God, but we use the word to do so. Acts 5, 34. So this is the perspective of the the lawyers and the the, Religious leaders in the Jewish temple system were having a discussion. What should we do with these Christians? What should happen? Should we go kill them all, or what? You know, what should we do? But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by the people. I think he, this guy was like one of the three main. Where'd Vicky go? I'm looking, looking. anybody know, I think Gamaliel was one of the three main teachers in the nation of Israel at the time. Very, very highly respected. This isn't just some guy that stood up and, you know, with some idea. One of the three, right? So a teacher of the law held in honor by the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days... Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all followed him who were scattered. Uh, all the, yeah, verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan... Or this undertaking is for man, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. I mean, you know, this is basic wisdom, but this guy's pretty smart. You might even find, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. I mean, here's this guy's like, look, this might be of God, but let's just beat them just in case. I he didn't specifically say to beat them, but that's what they did. And don't be talking about Jesus anymore. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. For the name. How does this one say it? For his name. The suffering came because they were standing up for his name. Again, what I'm trying to do is set the context of what the Bible says about suffering, right? It's there, but never is it related to anything that God has done in you through Christ. Salvation, holiness, righteousness. So verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Acts 9 verse 15. This is after Paul's experience with the Lord on the road to Damascus. Paul (laughs) is killing Christians. Paul is an ISIS member, essentially, to put it into perspective, thinking that he's doing the will of God to kill Christians. He may have even been present in the stoning of Stephen, and God calls him. I mean, it'd be like Saddam Hussein becoming the, 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 the number one evangelist on this planet. Now, I don't mean to be, in, that's not an anti-Semitic statement of, you know, anti-Israel. That's not the point. It's just, this guy's killing Christians, all right? Because you'd be surprised. Somebody's watching on that Internet, they're going to send me an email. <laughs> Acts 9, 15. This is God speaking to Ananias to go to Paul, lay hands on him, and give him a word for his ministry. This is the commission that Paul received to go and do what he did. I mean, I think somebody counted it one time, and it's a certain 40-something words that was God, Paul's commission. Paul, man, he's like, all right, let's go. You know, you got Moses for 40 years wandering around going, anyway, that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> <clears throat> Two thirds of God's name is go. Quit waiting. <laughs> Acts 9 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. It was right there. Go. For he is chosen. He, it, talk, Anani, this is to Ananias to go give Paul a word. Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I mean, that's pretty comprehensive. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. But Paul is the revelator of faith righteousness. So Romans 8, 16. Romans eight sixteen, The Spirit himself bears witness. See, I'm just showing you what the Bible says about suffering and what's related to it because we read so much into it. Next week I'm going to go into... Uh, Abraham being tested and the scripture that says God won't allow more to come upon you than that which you are able. We're going to tie that over to James and, you know, we'll deal with those things. This week, we just want to put suffering in context. Essentially, God's not needing you to suffer to bless you. God is not needing you to endure pain to give you something that was gained and earned by the finished work of Jesus. Now, you might, unfortunately, in the way that you think in your hardness of your own heart, only open yourself up to receive some kind of blessing from God. It might take you to go through difficulty. You hear it all the time. People are like, well, you know what? When I had cancer, then I did this, and now my life is so much better, so therefore God gave me that cancer to draw me closer to Him. That's circumstantial theology. You cannot attribute those types of dealings with you to God. It's not in the Word that way. It unfortunately takes us laying flat on our back sometimes to turn to Him. The hardness of our hearts and the dependence on our own flesh and intellect keeps us from experiencing what He wants for us. But He doesn't need to put you through pain to get rid of it. I know, I know. Some of us have been holding these beliefs for years and years and years and years and years. And I don't pretend to change everything that you think about that stuff in one day, but I do want you to consider and maybe change how you see God in some areas. <clears throat> Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. All right. People have attributed salvation to suffering with Him. People have attributed to being glorified with Him to salvation. All right. This is, there's one phrase... This one word, this idea, is one time in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, and it's in this right here. In other words, to be glorified with him, which let's see how this says it. Yeah, this is, this is a bad translation here. This is, when you go to the original language, it, do you have a Young's Literal Translation? In fact, I've got the Young's Literal Translation. You know, people say, well, I'm King James only, as if that's the original language. You want to be only something, go Greek. Go find some of those original manuscripts, you know, and even some of those vary a little bit. So let's be spirit only, amen? But to deal with this issue of to be glorified together, glorified with him, let's look more in the original. All right, this is the, this is, yeah, verse 17. Pull that down for a minute, and what I'm gonna read you is the Young's literal translation. The Young's literal translation is basically from Greek directly to English without rearranging all of the words for syntax and grammar. And it's just, this is this word, it means this here. It's like a direct reflection, but it doesn't make sense grammatically in English. But you see how the original intent. So this is verse 17. And if children also heirs, Heirs indeed of God and heirs together of Christ if indeed we suffer together that we may also be glorified together. All right. The word glorified together is the word syndoxeo. The word doxa in Greek is the word glory. So this is with glory. Syndoxeo. All right. I know this is a little technical but bear with me. So, Suffering with him, glorified with him, okay? Let me ask you a couple questions. Where did Jesus' suffering come from? If if you're supposed to suffer with Jesus, okay, where did Jesus' suffering come from? Now, I'm not talking about on the cross. That's different. That's unique to him. That is the calling of the Messiah where he suffered the penalty and the curse for your sin, that's an isolated incident. You don't share in what he shared in on this. You don't share in the suffering other than you get the victory. Do you understand? I'm talking about in his life, when he suffered, where did it come from? We got one, the devil. Anybody else? Persecution people. That's right. Was his suffering from God? God allowed it because... Jesus had free will, and he needed to pass through this earth and experience everything that mankind had experienced. Do you see the difference? So his suffering was not from God for a purpose of holiness. All right. So it was the religious who wanted to kill him. So which kind of suffering with him can you expect? If you're to suffer with him to be glorified with him, it's the same kind of suffering, right? His suffering wasn't from God. I mean, I'm just it's just a little bit of logic here. Again, I'm just trying to untie some things in our mind of what we think suffering with him to be glorified with him even means. All right? So, to be glorified with him is not talking about salvation. When you do a study on glorifying God, it's talking about your life being your life putting the focus on Jesus. or exalting Jesus, okay? So talking about being glorified with him means that what you're going through brings him glory. You're not glorified by what you went through. You're glorifying him, okay? He gets all the glory. Are you with me? You don't get any glory through suffering other than what he, other than, your life, and if you, if you remain faithful in the face of persecution, even to the point of death, what that does is it gives Jesus glory because what it shows this world is I am real. I am the truth. I am the way. My love emboldens people to the degree that they will suffer and even lay down their lives because of who I am. That's suffering with Him To be glorified with Him. You don't get glory out of suffering. He gets the glory if you remain faithful toward Him. Amen? It's not related to salvation. I challenge you go do a word study on glorifying God, and it's always your life pointing to Him. Not you earning something through enduring a temptation. Or, again, I'm going to address that in James next week. So let's keep moving. Philippians 1, verse 27. Y'all all all right? I told you, you you're in school today. You got to bear with me. I'm only preaching once. Hey, Courtney, would you grab me a water, please, out of there? Philippians 1, 27. And we only have a couple more, then we'll be done. Only let your manner of life be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of destruction, but to, but, thank you, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in him or in me. So again, suffering for his sake. This is a big one that we hear that's like God preordained that I would suffer. Well, if God had his unhindered way, what would this place in your life look like? It's heaven on earth. I mean, you know, what we're trying to get to is that God doesn't need you to suffer. He knows how to give you a perfect life. Amen? Amen. All right. 2 Timothy 2.11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him... He will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. Go back to verse 12, to 2 Timothy 2.12. What's interesting in this is this is a different word for suffering that's used in any other place. What this word means is to persevere or to remain faithful even in the face of trials. All he's saying here is, see, because if you misunderstand the definition used here, You think your salvation is is gained if you suffer well. But it's a total different, it's a different word here. The word here means remain faithful. It's your faithfulness. It's your belief. It's your continued faith in Jesus that causes you to live with him. Amen? Amen? I mean, that's kind of a simple one. But so the issue is what he wants for you is heaven on earth. That's the way he created it. Jesus prayed it. That's the way he's going to put it back. Where we debate and where we splinter as the body of Christ are the methods that he uses currently to get us to experience heaven on earth. So, if we're looking at salvation in light of him giving us a gift and putting suffering in its proper place, how do we get clean? Because I I want to address that. I don't want to just leave you out of here with a shift of suffering without saying this. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 50. These are just a few passages to put the context in place. Okay, if God doesn't need you to suffer, then how does he get holiness to you? How does he get you clean? How does he sanctify you? How does he work his purpose, spiritual gifts, and life within you? First <coughs> Corinthians, y'all are doing good. Should give your, you should know, give, give yourself a pat on the back, y'all. Are, I know it's long, but I'm making you think. And I can post these notes. If you, if you ever want these notes and you want to go back, email me, clint at I will send you these notes. In fact, these particular notes I'll probably just go ahead and post in our Facebook group. Some of you are not on Facebook, so email me. If you're not in the group, email adam at forwardchurch.net and he'll, or me, and we'll get you added. It's just a little private group for people here, mostly prayer uh, swaps, but prayer swap. Is that a term? I'm getting tired. I can tell I'm getting hungry. First Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. See, there's a principle in there. Anything you do in your flesh, in other words, your body, your, your, your human nature, does not gain things from God, does not inherit what God has for you. Ephesians 5, 25. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, also loved the church, and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. Now, When you look at cleansing and you look at issues that are this specific, these are the areas where it uses the language to address cleansing, to address purification and sanctification. To associate purity and holiness and righteousness to suffering, it's implied by what people think about God. But here he specifically addresses cleansing and he attributes it it to the washing of the water of the Word. Did you you follow all of that? See, all of this stuff that we've been taught that somehow suffering produces a cleansing, that's implied. It never directly says it, but it directly says it here, and it attributes it to the washing of the water of the Word. Now, it's a big deal to somebody, you know, like me. love to teach, and I love to get all the words in the right place and make sure that I properly understand how God would say this. I, I'm telling you, if you really could just look into the mirror of your heart and see what you believe, it would be shocking how much you believe because of implication rather than just what the truth of the Word says. I mean, that, that's, that's what I feel like part of the journey of this church is, is a path, is a path to get the Word in the right place, and that is, it is what I go to to believe what I believe. Amen. Amen. Verse 26 again, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy. And blameless. You don't present yourself to God as holy and blameless. He presents you to Himself. You don't go to Him and say, Look, I endured suffering and temptation and trials and persecution. Look how holy I am, God. I'm presenting myself to you, recognizing what I've endured. Now, we don't typically say that, but I'm telling you, when you're going through hard times, you think God owes you a little bit. <laughs> or you think you've given enough, and then all of a sudden your bank account's still drained. Or you prayed all night long, and it still didn't change. You're trying to change God by your works. You will not inherit the kingdom that way. You will not experience a blessing and promise that way. Those things you can do to get your heart at a place to be yielded to receive... That's all that giving is. There's no special mystery spiritual law that when you give money, it causes God to give money back to you. What it does is it's teaching your own heart and your own physical being to trust God. It makes absolutely no sense for you to take some of your money and give it on a consistent basis, and then you receive more than you could earn in your own efforts because of that. What that is, is you're, te- you're teaching yourself with that money. We're going to trust God. I'm not trusting in this money. This money is not my provider. I want to be at a place in my heart where I'm fully convinced that God is my provider. And to prove it to myself, I'm giving this money away. I'm not dependent on this stuff. I don't need this. God, you're my source. It's a discipline that you do for yourself in your own heart. Now, absolutely, it funds the gospel going forward and keeps the lights on. I mean, you guys appreciate air conditioning, right? We just turn that off and not pay that bill next week if you want. (laughs) I know, I know. So then finally, Ephesians 2.8, and this is really just kind of taking it down to as basic as it gets. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. Now, the word saved is the Greek word sozo. The word sozo is what? Saved, healed, delivered, whole, free from fear, free from lack. lack. That's part of the effects of it. it. Deeper in the definition, it means free from messianic judgment. Interesting that it goes that deep, right? So the word salvation is the word soteria. It also includes the word prospered because people will argue with that. Well, saved doesn't mean prospered. That's not part of it. Well, salvation does. You, got, you believe that word too, right? Okay. So, by grace are you saved. Let's just think about this just for a minute. One last point here, all right? Saved means healing, wholeness, soundness, preservation, restoration, rescue, free from messianic judgment. In other words, whatever the end looks like, when, if there is a dump of wrath in the end, whatever it looks like, you're free from that because you are saved. Amen. Uh, So you're healed by grace through faith. You're delivered by grace through faith. You're rescued by grace through faith. Grace is his divine influence in your heart that is there because you have confidence in him. Everything that God has for you associated with salvation and being saved is by grace through faith. Not by endurance through suffering. Not by knowledge through enough church services. Not by reward from being faithful in my giving. Every aspect of salvation is by grace through faith. Do you understand that? So then live accordingly and see God accordingly. Not a result of works, so that we boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now, the predestination thing I'll deal with. <clears throat> but what God has for you originates in spirit, that place of perfection. And the path is through His influence in your heart, which is grace, and your confidence toward Him, which is faith. You experience everything that He has for you. Nothing that God has for you is going to come through you suffering on this planet. That's just the effects of you going into this world and preaching the gospel. See, we need to be at a place where we can trust God, where we don't say, I'm boasting in my suffering, therefore you owe me, God. I'm boasting in all that I've done for you. Look at all that I've done for you. You owe me, God. We carry... a. Attacks in our heart against God, accusations against God because of our circumstances. We put God on trial because of the condition of our lives and we've watered down our level of belief or the context of our faith to what's happened in our lives. Rather than going to the Word and say, okay, this this is the standard. Everything else has to come up to this standard Then I'm going to come down and deal with things like lack and divorce and loss and pain and suffering. Because what I think you want for me, God, is heaven on earth. And I look forward to that day when the sky splits and he puts his foot on that mountain and the earth is restored and righteousness prevails and there is no more pain and suffering because that is what God wants for you. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Jesus, thank you for the completeness and the sufficiency of your sacrifice. Thank you for giving us your spirit to teach us, to lead us and guide us into your truth so that we can trust you, so that we can walk through anything that might happen to us on this planet remaining faithful towards you, that you would be glorified. God, I trust you. Just tell him that you trust him. I trust you. I trust that you have good plans for me, and I trust that you want the best for me, and you are leading me into your life. You are seeking to express your life through me, and I yield to your spirit.